Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. When you want to hear about the paranormal, you get the spooked girls. True crime that makes you hypothermal with the three spooked girls. Stabby snippets will give you dreams. Tara and Jessica will make you. We on that haunted ground The three spooked girls Hey there, spooksters, and welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Jessica, and as always, I'm joined by my favorite gal pal, Tara. Hey, spooksters. This week, we're going to be talking about a very, like, it was a case I didn't even realize existed, and it's yeah. it's really strange to me. We're going to be talking about the Honolulu Strangler. But before we do, we would like to tell you where you can hang out with us online. We have a Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle is at Three Spooked Girls. If you want to hang out with us on a little bit more of like a one-on-one, not really one-on-one because we interact with like a multiple people, but more of like a like a group interaction where we participate. That's the appropriate way to say that, Jessica. Learning. It's only taken you almost three years, but you got it. That's fine. <laughs> if you want to hang out with us in a group setting, we have a Facebook group, which we're active in, and that is Three Spooked Girls Official. Tara and I both have TikToks. She is much more active than mine. I have been out of the game for a little bit. I haven't been feeling the greatest lately. But Tara's is amazing. Yeah, it's it's super amazing. You should definitely check it out. Her handle is at spooky underscore sleuth. I don't know why I stumbled on this. You forgot it. I you know, I did. I was me. like, wait, I was part of that. <laughs> no, it's just like, because like mine is at spooky Aunt Jessie. So I was like, wait, I maybe I hers know. is different than mine. I don't know. But you can check them out. <laughs> no. We talk cases. Tara has had some really cool, like, collabs on there and everything like that should definitely check it out like she got to do a quiet place collab so before we head into the episode and talk about the drink of the week we're going to take a quick promo break we'll be back in just a moment uh we were actually uh me and my friend here it points to a cat oh <laughs> <laughs> well, your friends with a cat yes he's he's one of those uh dreamlands cats so uh he's more than a cat Yes, and he is very lucky to consider myself his friend. What did he say? He said that I was lucky to consider myself his friend. Oh, okay. I, I do feel that way. Okay. Uh, I don't have too many friends. You really aren't that bright, are you? No. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's me, Adam, the DM over at Microphones and Monsters. You just got done listening to a short clip from our show. Microphones and Monsters is a Cthulhu Mythos 5th edition actual play podcast. We ask you to join us every week, Monday and Friday. You can find us on your favorite podcatcher, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can find all of our links at microphonesandmonsters.com. Well, welcome back from that promo break. We hope you enjoyed the show. 
So the drink of the week, since we are going to be in Honolulu, I figured, you know, we need to do a Hawaiian themed drink and I didn't want to do something like Blue Hawaiian or something cheesy. So I did go with a Royal Hawaiian cocktail, which I believe is served like at specific places, but there's two ways to make it. There's the classic version, which does not have maraschino, like maraschino cherries, but it's actually maraschino, I think, cherry Mm -hmm. liqueur. So you either make it with or without. It's mainly gin, orgot syrup, pineapple juice, and lemon juice. And if you want to make it with the maraschino, you just add the liquor to the liqueur to that, which makes me excited because it's pretty... And it also is like, it's one of those cocktails that looks real simple. Like anyone can do it. So yeah, check that out on our Pinterest page. So I'm going to hand it off to Tara, who's going to tell you about kind of the victims and the crime. And then I'm going to pick it up. Investigation and basically the lack thereof. Yeah. So I have to point out, this is going to be just as frustrating as Jennings 8 was as far as information on the victims. I fucking hate when this happens, but it was like so fucking difficult and there was not a lot. So like Jessica said in Jennings 8, if anybody knows any of these victims and they would like us to share more of their life, please email us at threespeakgirls at gmail.com and we are happy to. I just wanted to give that disclaimer. All right. So our first victim, her name was Vicki Gale Purdy. She was 25 years old and originally from North Carolina. She was living in Hawaii with her husband, Gary, who was a helicopter pilot in the army. They had met when she was 16. And actually, at the time, she was married to Gary's cousin and that marriage had just ended. So two of them got together and they stayed together while finishing high school. And then after high school is when Gary enlisted in the army. Mm-hmm. Vicky was described as a headstrong, a spitfire, and very beautiful. After her death, Gary and also friends had been quoted saying that she was not a woman to be messed with, even though she was really petite. She was really small. She was like, I think, just a little over five foot. And apparently, and this like kind of, I don't know, I just kind of found it funny. Apparently, there was like a riff early in their marriage. And Gary, who's like a big ass dude, he was like 6'1", 6'2", mm-hmm. like 200 plus pounds. He said that in an argument, she, quote, she knocked the bleep out of me. That yeah. was in a newspaper. So, of course, it was like dash, dash, dash. I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> I love it when it's like these like tiny yeah. little like spitfire women are like, like they're giant, like oak tree of a man is like uh don't fuck with her she will kill you (laughs) (laughs) pretty much (laughs) it was also stated she had plenty of street smarts so she was aware of her surroundings and that it would have taken two people to abduct her because she was so fierce Everybody said she was a boss-ass bitch. And they also said she was always a fun-loving person and would go out dancing with her friends regularly. And, it, you know, she, like, did her own thing. It wasn't uncommon for her to go out without Gary sometimes. So on May 29th, 1985, she was out having a girls' night. She was supposed to meet her friends at a club in Waikiki, but she never showed. Some reports said that she also was supposed to be back home around 9-ish, but she didn't show up home either. What kind of girls' night gets over at night? Like nine. That didn't make any sense. And with something else, it doesn't make sense. So I'm like, I want to mention it because it's what I found in multiple things. But like, I don't know. I I trusted the newspapers more, obviously, with this stuff. So 
you can do what you will. Like 9 a.m. maybe? Maybe it was a typo. I don't know. You know, it was the 80s, so who knows? But she didn't come home. And Gary had said that he paged her numerous times, you know, to check on her, see where she was, but no answer. And why the 9 p.m. thing? I'm like, that's weird. So around midnight, Vicky was last seen alive by a taxi driver at midnight at the Shorebird Hotel because she had parked her car there and she was going to, you know, get it and go home. But the next morning came and still no Vicky. And once they went out looking for her, they found her car in said parking lot. And then her body was found in an embankment at Cahey Lagoon. And she was wearing her yellow jumpsuit that she had worn the previous night. Her hands had been bound behind her back. She had been strangled and she had been raped with her hands behind her back. Also, please note that it is a parachute type of cord. This will be important. We will see this in all of the victims. Gary had told police that Vicky had worked at a video rental store and there had actually been two other female employees that were killed within the last year. Wow. From there. So that's interesting. So they looked into that to see if it was a possible connection because apparently they rented out adult type films here. So they're like, oh, this might because this obviously is a like they're like, oh, sexually motivated crime or sexual nature to this crime that like they were trying to see if that had a connection. Right. Makes sense. But nothing came of that. Now, our second victim is Regina Sakamoto, and she was 17 years old. She was originally from Kansas, but she had moved to Hawaii with her family because her stepdad, who is Maurice Sakamoto, whose last name she took, was a member of the military as well and was stationed there in Hawaii. At the time of her death, she was a senior in high school, and she was described as a shy and quiet girl. She had been planning on attending college at Hawaii Pacific University that fall. Regina was last confirmed to be alive on January 14th, 1986, so we do have a bit of a gap here from these two. And she had made a call on a payphone to her boyfriend at like 7.15 a.m., and she had told him she was running late so she would miss her usual bus. She wouldn't make it in time, so she'd be a little later. She was going to catch the next one. And what is really frustrating, especially with Regina, is like there's little inconsistencies, obviously, with the reporting with Vicky. But with this one, there's like really poor reporting, which Aww. makes me so sad for her family. Because some say she went missing for a month. Oh, some wow. said two weeks. Like it varied so much. I'm like, what the hell is happening? But literally what I saw the most, and if this is incorrect, I do apologize. But even when I watched, I watched something on Discovery Plus on this, it said her body was found the next day. And it was found at the same lagoon. Mm. And she was wearing a blue tank top and a white sweatshirt, but her lower half was unclothed. And same thing as Vicky, she had that same cord around her hands and it was behind her back and she had been sexually assaulted and strangled. Now, this is when police started to connect the dots, though, and they were like, we might have a serial killer on our hands because it's same M.O. They were both kind of like similar features. They were both petite females, you know, and they were dumped in the same secluded area. So this would be a place that like locals knew was like you had some privacy. So, yeah. They're like, okay, so it's like, you know, it's starting to go around, like, what the fuck is happening with all of that? And another thing that was really weird, Regina's foot actually had an extension cord tied around it. It was fastened to the rocks. So whoever did this wanted her body to be found. Right. So, ugh 
craziness, craziness. Now we would start picking up in the time as we go. It's so much more closer, which makes you really wonder if like whoever is responsible for this, if maybe something triggered them to start acting faster or they were getting more comfortable or cocky, we don't know. So our third victim is Denise Hughes, age 21. She was said to be very active in her church and she worked for a phone company called Long Distance USA. She was a secretary. She was described as someone who always had a smile on her face no matter what. And she was married as well. Her husband's name was Charles, who was a sailor stationed there at Pearl Harbor. Kind of similar to the other two. So at first I was like, that's weird. Like, there's a victim that's not tied to the military. But I was like, wow, that's that's interesting. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Those are tied like that. So on January 30th, Denise was taking her normal commute to work via bus. But she never showed up for her shift. and. That was really red flag because she was said to be extremely reliable. You know, she had good work ethic. It wasn't like her whatsoever. So they're like, what the hell? Well, her body would be found two days later on February 1st, but this time in a different location. She was found in a stream by three fishermen, but I saw a map of all of these places and everyone except one victim was within like a close proximity to each other. So... She was found at Moanalua Stream, and three fishermen found her. Now, with her, her body, she was in a blue dress, but she was wrapped in a blue tarp, and her hands were bound, same as the other victims. And the other thing, too, that's pointed out by authorities that worked this was that they were all bound the same way in this, like, really complicated thing. Like, it's, like, around and in between and, like, a whole thing. So it was just, like... All similar. And fun fact, well, I don't know if it's a fun fact. This parachute cord thing was not public knowledge. So they're like, this person's using the same shit. Like, that's not a coincidence. Right. Like, that's a detail that didn't come out. Right. The guy, the person has a signature. Well, it's a man. Has a signature knot. Mm -hmm, Exactly. And she had also been sexually assaulted and strangled as well. Now, after the discovery of Denise, that's, I think, what it seems like what really kicked, you know, set the fire to go for the Honolulu Police Department. They obviously had to be like, yes, we have a serial killer. Like, this is the first one. And some things I was reading and watching said the only one that's happened there. So they did a task force. I mean, I'm sure Jessica will get into that. But basically, that's also when he got when this person got their name, too. So he's known as the Honolulu Strangler, like we've said, or the Honolulu Rapist. So that's when he got his name. And then after this, we would have our fourth victim, and it would be 25-year-old Luis Medeiros. So Luis was described as someone who went out on her own. She moved away from all of her family as a teenager. In the six years she was away from family, she had only been home once prior to her last trip. And it was said that she had three children, and she was also pregnant at the time when she died. She was three months pregnant. She had recently gone to Kauai because her mother had just passed away, and her family said that she seemed different in a really good way. She'd previously gone through a little bit of a rough patch. She had had some troubles with the law and things like that, but now they said she had seemed, quote, centered and motivated, no longer the alienated rebel, end quote. So after this trip, she took a red eye back to Oahu on March 26th of this year, and she was last seen alive, obviously, deboarding the plane, and she was on her way to catch the bus to head home. Then on April 2nd, her body would be found by construction workers in the same area. And like the other victims, she had this parachute cord 
she was wearing her blouse, but her lower body was unclothed and she was strangled and sexually assaulted. Now, our last victim, her name's Linda Pesh, and she's also the oldest victim. She was 36 years old. She was originally from California, and as she got into, like, college age, she decided to hitchhike across the U.S. and then obviously eventually took a plane. I was just like, how they wrote that was kind of funny because they're like, then she ended up in Honolulu. I'm like, you can't really hitchhike to Hawaii, but okay. (laughs) I get what they were saying, though. And when she was in Honolulu, she worked at a nightclub as a dancer. And then after that, she decided to move to Guam for a short period of time where she was a dancer as well. And then after that, she moved back to Honolulu. And Linda was described as a, quote, carefree, streetwise, self-centered, opinionated, and a knockout, and also a fighter and a very tough lady, end quote. Eventually, Linda became a mother. At the time of her death, she had a seven-year-old daughter. And it was said that once she had her daughter, she stepped up. You know, she left the party scene behind. She was getting serious and growing up and, you know, took responsibility as a mom. On April 29th, Linda had told her roommate that she would be coming home late because she had a work meeting, you know, after hours. But Linda never came home. The next morning, her roommate noticed she wasn't there, and then people, you know, like the people she was working with, she didn't come to work. And again, it was another situation where they're like, oh, fuck, where the fuck is Linda? So, of course, they went looking. And her car would be found parked on a viaduct, which is, I was like, what the fuck does that word mean? But it's a bridge with, like, arches and shit. It's a bridge. And this would be on Route 92 Interstate H1. And after this, they filed a missing persons report. And what's weird with this one is an unidentified male, age 43, told police that a psychic, also no name given, had informed him that her body was located on Sand Island. Also, there is a varying story with that. There's another one saying a 911 call came in and said he stumbled upon, a dude stumbled upon some remain, some bones. And he's like, I don't know if they're human or what. Can you come look at them? So police go and they take them there and then they're animal bones. They're not human bones. But they get a call later, a little bit later that day, that a couple had come across a body. And it was like 75 yards away from where this dude took them. So that's not sketch at all. Weird. And when they did get there to Sand Island again and responded to this call, they did find her. And she had been, same as the other victims, strangled, hands tied behind her back and sexually assaulted. And she was nude. So that is our victims. And like I said, if you guys have, if anyone knows any of these victims and you have stories of, you know, their life you would like to share with us, please, please, please let us know. And we are happy to do so. But that is what I found in my research and whatnot. So I am going to hand it over to Jessica now. Okay. So like Tara mentioned earlier, the Honolulu Police Department, who was at the time this particular case was being headed up by a Major Chester Hughes. They established a 27-person serial killer task force. This was done on February 5th, 1986, and they actually got help from the FBI and another serial killer's task force, which was the Green River Killer Task Force. So this is like a big deal. And like Tara said, like they had didn't have anyone mm-hmm. prior to this. I mean, at least this police department was like, hey, we know we need help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The FBI's Behavioral Science Unit, which is also known as Behavioral Analysis Unit, profiled the Honolulu Strangler as a Caucasian male in his late 30s or early 40s who had no prior criminal record may have been experiencing marital or girlfriend problems at the time, drove a cream-colored American-made van, 
because someone had seen the van. They're not magic, guys. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> you guys know that. <laughs> and may have lived or worked in the area between Sand Island and Wayapayu. They think that he was also an opportunist because all his victims were kind of in transit, if that makes sense. Like they were going someplace. So it was someone who was taking advantage or the opportunities of finding women who were vulnerable at bus stops and then either a stalked them. They think that maybe he had stalked them over a period of days, possibly. Like I said, they also believe that he lived or worked between Waypahe or Sand Island. Sand Island. I don't know why I said Sam. Sorry, guys. Police also set up barricades at the time of Linda's murder to question frequent commuters, which made sense because, like, up until this point, like, you know, the first victim had a car and then the last victim had a car. Everyone else was kind of, like, taking public transit. Which was smart because things came from it. Witnesses came forward, like Tara mentioned earlier, and they called in about the body. But they also called in and they said that that's when they had seen a light-colored van and a Caucasian or a mixed-race man. So I'm assuming someone with a tan with Linda's car. Motorists were also claiming that on the evening of the 29th, April 29th, they saw the car's emergency lights flashing, indicating it had stalled. So like, I get it. Like if you were like, I don't have time to stop and help, you probably wouldn't have. So following Linda's, the discovery of Linda's body, the police made an arrest and the man they arrested was a man by the name of Howard Gay. And this happened on May 9th. And he became the primary suspect. And I will tell you that he has like literally been the only suspect. They never Mm -hmm. even, like I literally Googled like it 12 ways to Sunday. Like how can I figure out another way to say this? Maybe I'll trick Google to give me the information I want. And Mm -hmm. it's like, there's never been another name attached to this case. So who was Howard Gay? His name was, and by the way, I found a lot of this information from his obituary. So thank God someone wrote an obituary because otherwise we would know very little about this man. Right. Mm-hmm. He was born January 1st, 1943 in Buffalo, New York. He joined the Army and was stationed at George Air Force Base, which was about 30 minutes or so from Apple Valley, California. So like Victorville area, like down south. He stayed in Apple Valley for about 15 years, and then he was eventually discharged from the Army in 1965. At that point in time, he decided to attend Victor Valley College and got an associate's degree and became employed by the Continental Telephone in Victorville, where he held a job as a lineman and a teletype repairman. So about the time he was discharged, he married Rita Thompson, who was his college sweetheart, and he Mm -hmm. fathered two children, Justin and Jason. In 1986, he became employed at the Flying Tiger Line at the Los Angeles International Airport. Basically, his role was he was a mechanic, but he would train other mechanics to do like cargo aircraft mechanics, and he would actually travel for this. And in 1980, he would be relocated to the International Airport in Honolulu. So he lived there. He rented a three-bedroom home in Iwa Beach. And in 1983, he basically filed for divorce. I don't think he was really ready to be a dad or a husband at this time. I just kind of think like he moved to Hawaii and was like, okay, cool. I can kind of live this like beach lifestyle, like laid back. Basically, the story that it gets told is that one day his family decided to surprise him by moving to Hawaii or at least Mm -hmm. traveling there. And Mm -hmm. he wouldn't let them in the house. 
he was upset. So he was like, you can't stay here. And he made them stay in a hotel. And then, and I'm sure he got tickets through the airline. So like, you know. Mm-hmm. And then a couple of days later, he made them go back to California. Oh. Both his ex-wife and his new girlfriend at the time of his arrest described him as a smooth talker. He was Mm -hmm. described to be clean cut and polite. There was like a sailing club that he frequented was named the La Marina Sailing Club. And they were, you know, they saw him all the time. But he also did give off creepy vibes because a female assistant manager who worked at the sailing club said that in 1986, she recognized Howard as a man who would routinely stare at her, asked Mm -hmm. her to accept rides for him once reacted like very upset that she said no Mm. like basically he was like i'll take you home i'll give you a ride home you know she's like no i got a ride from a co-worker and he just got really upset and like started yelling and then stormed out his ex-wife and his girlfriend also said that he had a particular fetish that he liked he was into bondage and he would routinely tie them up with their hands behind their back during sex Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. His girlfriend said that one night after they had fought... Oh, this is this is interesting. His girlfriend said that on the nights after they would have fights, he would leave the house. And those dates just so happened to correspond with the murders that occurred. So oh if you God. take the FBI's profile, it's basically like they'd get into this fight and he'd be all like pent up and leave and like, mm-hmm. yeah. So he's arrested, right? So Tara mentioned someone earlier about a man calling about some bones they found on Sand Island. Well, the man who called was, in fact, Howard Gay. He called and was like, hey, there are these bones there. And they turned out to be pig bones. And this was like technically before he was arrested. So this was earlier on. But the police and the task force put him under surveillance because they're like, the coincidence was too crazy that he called in and then 75 yards away or whatever, they find the body of the person they're looking for. Right. Yeah, that's that's not a coincidence. So his behavior was matching up perfectly with the profile. And also, they could kind of connect some of the crime scenes through his work. You know, we had one of the victims who had just deboarded a plane. And a lot of these places were kind of around the airport. Right. Yeah. Within what they say, like within like 12 miles or something, like super close. Mm -hmm. Right. And he lived pretty close to where they, the two of the victims disappeared and where they found Louise's body. He also drove a Mm -hmm. cream colored American made van with letters on the rear back window. He also, Mm -hmm. I don't know how to say this. He had a vasectomy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So basically, one of the things is they said is there was evidence of the sexual assault, but there wasn't ever like, you know what I'm saying? The swimmers. There wasn't ever like evidence of ejaculation mm-hmm. or whatever. I don't really know how. This uh, yeah, I don't know the science behind it, but I get what you're saying. Whatever they looked at, the swimmers weren't like they were tailless. I don't know what, what it is. What happens? Yeah. And at least three of the victims had been raped by someone who'd had a vasectomy. Ugh. So... And that through his work, he would most likely have access to paracord. Yep. And it would probably be the same bunch of paracord. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Here's another interesting fact. It was said that the last day that Linda was at work, her boss said that she found Howard's number written down on a pad, which is weird. But it said that at the time, Linda was looking for customers in the airport area. So, oh, yeah. 
Also, the bodies were put in places or secured in places that the police would find them quickly, which is Mm -hmm. what they believed that Howard was wanting. Now, as far as interrogations go, they brought him in and he was interrogated from 8 p.m. to 3 a.m., which let's face it, that's a long time, but it's not that long of a time in comparison to what we've seen. Mm -hmm. He also volunteered to take a polygraph, which Hmm. he failed. Mm, okay and because this is the 1980s they didn't have like the dna testing and the stuff like that that they do today so they really had to release him so they ended up releasing him about may 10th after he was released there's a very fun photo of him like walking with like his shirt pulled over his head but he did give a statement and he said the police have released me that's all i know they meaning the investigators have Plenty of good cause. They're doing their job. That's the fucking... That's what he told reporters. The fact that he said have plenty of good cause, I was like, oh, he's he's guilty AF. Given the lack of defensive wounds on the majority of the victims, it was assumed that they were not forcefully abducted, but that Howard had, like, lured them into the van. You know, you could see, like, Regina, like, maybe he said to her, hey, like, I'll give you a ride. You know, I'll give you a ride so you don't have to wait for the bus because you're late. You know, so I could see that. Or if if you're Linda and you're you're stranded somewhere because your car stalled and this dude mm-hmm. rolls up and is like, hey, but you kind of know him, you know, I don't know. It was just kind of like this thing. And I think that he would talk to them and eventually would win their trust. And so they would get into the like the vehicle willingly and then he would attack them. I just like every time I like think of this case, I really hope that he had like strangled them first. You know, so that they didn't endure all of the other stuff. Yeah. So the police basically just started following Howard. And that's what they were doing. They were like, okay, we got to catch him. He's got to get like caught. And two private businesses in the area put up a 20, like they came together and put up a $25,000 reward for information. So that was pretty cool. About two months after the final murder, a woman came forward and claimed that she had saw Linda with a man the night that she was murdered. And she was successfully able to pick, like, Howard out of a lineup of men. But she didn't want to be a witness because she believed he could see her through the wall. So she was not willing to move forward. Well, the killing stopped at the end of, like, Mm -hmm. April of 1986. And it could be that Howard had relocated. He had returned to California in June of 1986 to see his son Jason graduate from high school. And then he, like, stayed there in California. And I think one of the things that contributed to this was that Jason, his son, who he went to see graduate, died three days later in an automobile accident. (gasps) Oh, man. Right. Which Mm. essentially prompted Howard to become a born-again Christian, like, immediately. Oh. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. And then he actually ended up working for FedEx for some time in Memphis, Tennessee, and then came back to the Flying Tiger line a couple years later. Uh, Despite the fact that Howard has never actually been brought to trial or convicted, Luis Souza, who is the lieutenant leading the task force, they believe that they are convinced he is the Honolulu Strangler. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, Howard Gay died on November 2nd, 2003 at a hospital in Inglewood, which is here in California, after a long battle with his kidney. He had kidney Mm. failure. So the case has gone unsolved. And like I mentioned earlier, they legitimately just didn't do anything. Like, 
they didn't have any other suspects. And right. this is one of those things where like, as DNA evidence or DNA technology has moved on, they should be like testing this against somebody. And if not anything else, just to rule out Howard. But they're yeah. convinced it's him. And they just, they haven't looked into anyone else, really. They haven't gotten tips on anyone else. Mm-hmm. But this case has been covered by a few people. The Case Fire True Crime podcast covered it in October of 2017. Tara's program that she mentioned earlier, Breaking Homicide aired on May 13th, 2018. And My Favorite Murder did it July 12th of 2018. So it has been covered by some, but not all. I think, one, it's a really hard case because there's not a ton of information out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the same, like, sometimes it's really hard when we, like, get cases or, like, cases recommended to us because it ends up being, like, the wiki page regurgitated over, like, every single news source. So, and this was kind of like that, I think. Mm -hmm. I was really fortunate that I found a couple of people who wrote about him as a person and I found his obituary. Like, that was fortunate because then I could give some sort of a background. It's just sad because these, like, five women all died and there's this huge task force that I'm sure is scaled way back now. (laughs) It's not 27 people. But there's still people who are, like, actively working this case because it's never been solved. Mm. Yeah. But we have the technology people. Yes. Because I'm assuming, I would hope that they would have taken DNA from him in 86. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know if that was part of procedure then. I don't know. The only reason I say that is because the FBI was there and the Green River Task Force. Like, they were, like, lending expertise. Mm -hmm. They may have said, if you get a suspect, you need to get some sort of DNA because you're going to need to eventually run it. So... Who knows? This might be one of those things that we eventually find out because someone goes... Because it's also a budgetary thing, too. I'm assuming that they don't have a huge budget in their homicide. Well, that kind of wraps us up for today's episode. I was interested in this case because it was just so like I had no idea about it. So Mm -hmm. I hope you guys found it interesting, too. And we will be back here on Thursday for another Stabby. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.